continuing in our journey through the book of Acts. And as we are in Acts, the place that we're in, we have been walking through Paul's second missionary journey. Last week, we saw Paul speak to Greek philosophers in Athens. And this week, we'll see Paul's next stop, which is the city of Corinth. And you can see that on this map. Uh, We've been tracing Paul's journey. He's gone through Macedonia, now he's down in Achaia, and uh, he was in Athens last week, and this week we'll see him come over to Corinth. Corinth was a large, prominent city in its day. It was also an immoral city. It was uh, the Las Vegas of its time. Paul would go on to write multiple letters, of course, to the Corinthians, uh, but in Acts 18, we get to see Paul's very first ministry to the Corinthians. So with that, If you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? Uh, We're going to be reading Acts 18, starting in verse 1, and we'll go through verse 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles." And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, See to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Sometimes we who are Christians speak as if 
Christianity were fragile. For example, last year during the election, some said, well, don't vote for that candidate. He'll destroy Christianity. Vote for this candidate. He'll save Christianity. Earlier this year, a a prominent pastor was talking about a, a particular worldly system of thought, an ideology. And he said that it was dangerous to the Christian church. Others said about this same ideology that it was a threat to the gospel. Uh, I give in to this kind of language. Just the other day, someone said to me, this pandemic has harmed our church. And, And I agreed. But when we make statements like that, what does it say about how we view Christianity? If Christianity is so fragile that one politician can save it or destroy it, is it really worth being a Christian? If the gospel is so weak that one ideology can threaten it, is it really worth believing the gospel? If the church is so frail that it can be harmed by a pandemic, is it really worth being a part of? Well, I have good news today. We don't have a weak faith because we do not have a weak Lord. No government official is so great that he can help Jesus and no government official is so bad that he can thwart Jesus. Jesus will use both as his instruments And turn their hearts wherever he will, as Proverbs 2 says. No ideology is so dangerous that it can threaten the gospel of Jesus. Jesus said that the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations in Matthew 24, 14. No pandemic is so severe that it can harm what Jesus is doing. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Listen, if you are a part of Christianity, you have joined yourself to a Lord who is strong. His mission will not fail. His gospel will go forth. His church will be built. What we're going to see in Acts 18 today is that we can have confidence as we carry out the mission of Jesus because our sovereign Lord Jesus is the protector of the mission. As our text unfolds, we'll see this truth unfold in three scenes. In verses 1 through 8, we'll see protection needed. In verses 9 through 11, we'll see protection promised. And in verses 12 through 17, we'll see protection granted. First, protection needed. Protection needed. Well, Paul arrived in Corinth, and he met Aquila and Priscilla. These are names that we'll see come up multiple times throughout the Bible. Aquila and Priscilla lived in Rome, but the emperor Claudius had expelled Jews from the city. In this context, it seems that Aquila and Priscilla were already Christians by the time they arrived in Corinth. Uh, But the the Romans viewed Christians as just a subset of Jews. 
So the Jewish background Christians were kicked out of Rome too. They just kind of lumped them all together, kicked them out. So that's how Aquila and Priscilla ended up in Corinth. And Paul stayed with Aquila and Priscilla. And he worked with them because they were all uh, tent makers. They were working in, in leather uh, and leather goods, tents specifically. Paul made and sold these tents to fund his ministry. Now, he would later write to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9, and he would explain to them that he actually had the right to do ministry full-time and to live on financial gifts. But he would, at times, choose to work if doing so would remove an obstacle that stood in the way of the gospel. And so in this case, Paul set aside his right to live on financial support. And instead of doing apostolic ministry full time, he spent a significant amount of time during the week working to provide for himself. But every week on the Sabbath, he would go to the synagogue. Look at verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So just as he's done multiple stops along the way, Paul reasoned with them in the synagogue. This was his custom. He would go to the Jews first and explain and prove to them from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Well, then in verse 5, Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia. So the last time we saw Silas and Timothy was in Berea in Macedonia. Paul had left them behind when he had to flee for his life to Athens. And uh, other passages of scripture imply that they actually did end up meeting him uh, in Athens. But then he actually sent them back to Macedonia. And now they're coming from Macedonia to him in Corinth. And it seems that Silas and Timothy brought Paul some financial resources with them from the churches in Macedonia. So Paul would later, the reason why I say that is because Paul would later write to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 9 and say this, And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia, Silas and Timothy, supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So again, we see another example here. Paul did not want to burden the Corinthians in any way. So first, that took the form of making and selling tents to provide for himself. But then these Macedonian Christians provided financial resources for him so that he didn't have to make and sell tents anymore. And that explains what Luke goes on to say in verse 5. One of the things that um, I would encourage you to do as you're uh, trying to study the Bible and, and, and uh, read it in depth is to read multiple translations um, of, the, of the Bible. Uh, one of the things that uh, you can see if you look at multiple translations uh, is that the ESV isn't super clear here. Uh, most other versions translate verse 5 a little bit different. Uh, probably a better way to translate verse 5 is how the NASB puts it, and they put it this way. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. 
or here's how the NLT translates it. After Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul spent all his time preaching the word. So the idea is that when Silas and Timothy came with those financial resources from the churches in Macedonia, Paul was able to stop making tents and then give himself full time to the ministry of preaching the word. Okay, so Paul is is laboring to provide for himself so that he could enable his ministry to the Corinthians. And then these... uh, uh, ministers, Paul, or excuse me, Silas and Timothy come from Macedonia and they bring these financial resources and he's able to devote himself full time. He gives all of his energy then to teaching, to reasoning in the synagogues week after week after week. So imagine how discouraging it must have been for Paul after all this, after putting in all this effort to be able to devote himself full time to preaching. Imagine how discouraging it would have been to receive the kind of reception that he did in verse 6. They opposed and reviled him. The Jews at the synagogue resisted Paul. Uh, They insulted Paul. Uh, This man who was spending and being spent for their sake, they had no gratitude, no appreciation They rejected him. But of course, as in the case of any minister of the gospel, ultimately, they weren't rejecting Paul. They were rejecting Jesus. And so, Paul let these Jews know just how serious what they were doing really was. How serious it was that they were rejecting the Messiah. First, he he shook out his garments, which was this symbolic gesture of judgment against them. Second, he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. They didn't believe the gospel, but it was not because they did not hear the gospel. Paul preached it to them. Paul had done everything he could to reason with them and show them the truth of scripture but they still rejected jesus so all the responsibility for their unbelief was entirely on their heads paul was innocent so finally paul said from now on i will go to the gentiles now we've seen him say something like this before back on the first missionary journey acts chapter 13 verse 46 if you want to go back and look at that And what we've seen is that this is not a statement about all Jews and Gentiles everywhere. It's not like, well, up to this point in all of my journeys, I've been going to Jews, and now I'm not going to Jews ever again, and then I'm only going to Gentiles from here on out. This wasn't Paul's approach universally. It was his approach in an individual city. So he would always go to a new town and first go to the synagogue, to the Jews. He would preach the gospel to them. And if they accepted it, He'd continue with them. You'll remember in Berea, the Bereans were um, studying the scriptures daily and Paul continued with them. But if they rejected it, then Paul would go to the Gentiles. So this happened on the first missionary journey when he went to uh, Antioch in Pisidia. He went to the Gentiles. But then when he would go to another new town after that, he would start again with the Jews first. So every town he followed this process. 
So Paul says, I'm going to the Gentiles. I'm leaving the synagogue. Paul left, but he didn't go far. Look at verse 7. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. So he just decided to set up shop right next door to the synagogue. Uh, This man that he stayed with was apparently part of the minority at the synagogue who actually did believe the gospel, the the very beginnings of the church in Corinth. Uh, And Titius Justus wasn't the only one. He wasn't alone. Many people in Corinth came to know the Lord as a result of Paul's ministry there in Corinth. Look at verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So most of the synagogue may have rejected the gospel, but in God's mercy, even the ruler of the synagogue actually trusted Jesus. And let that just be a reminder to us, never count anyone out. Jesus can save anyone, even the most unlikely candidate. But it wasn't just Crispus, it was his whole household and many others. They heard the good news of Jesus, they placed personal faith in Jesus to save them, and then they professed their faith by obeying Jesus' command to be baptized. Uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1.14, even mentions baptizing Crispus. Despite the rejection, despite the hostility of the Jews in Corinth, the Lord was still at work in Corinth. Well, as we look at this passage, we see an important truth about the gospel. The same gospel that saves those who accept it condemns those who reject it. As Paul speaks, he gives the message of salvation. And when it is rejected, he says to these Jews who reject it, your blood is on your own heads. We need to understand that you can accept the gospel and you will be saved. Listen to what Jesus did for you. We've all sinned against a holy God. And because of that, we all deserve to have our blood on our own heads. To have our guilt on ourselves and receive the just punishment due for our sins. But Jesus took the guilt that we have and he brought it on his own head. He took our guilt on himself and he bled as our substitute. And now he offers salvation to anyone who would trust in him. You can have, you can have forgiveness and eternal life for free. All you have to do is trust in Jesus to save you from your sin. Place your faith in Jesus and you will be saved. But, if you hear that good news and you reject it, you will be condemned by God because of your sin. There is a way to be made right with God, but there is only one way to be made right with God. And it's through Jesus Christ. 
just now, you have heard the good news about Jesus. And if you do not believe in Jesus, it's not because you haven't heard it. It's because you've chosen not to believe. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, 3, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The answer is we won't. So don't neglect the great salvation that Jesus offers you today. Do not reject the gospel. Sadly, most of the Jews in Corinth did reject the gospel. So much so that they were hostile toward Paul. And so Paul needed protection. And that leads us to the next section in which we see protection promised. Protection promised. But before we see that, let's recap. Paul spent weeks... Weeks at the synagogue. Paul went to great lengths to not just preach at the synagogue on the weekends, but to give himself full time to preaching the gospel. And yet, the result of all this effort was resistance and hostility from his Jewish audience. There were many people who believed but the situation with the Jews still loomed large. Because not only had they rejected the gospel, but now even the leader of the synagogue had converted to Christianity. And so you can be sure that that was going to stir up some jealousy and controversy at the synagogue. So if you're Paul, where do you go from here? If Paul's experience at other places is any indication, this is about the time in the story when the Jews form a mob and kick him out of town. Paul's probably starting to pack his bags. Furthermore, just think about how discouraged Paul must have been after all this. I mean, consider all the energy that Paul expended to preach the gospel in Corinth. And then consider what he was burdened by as a result. Rejection, opposition, friction, hostility, insults. This is a recipe for fear. I mean... Sure, there was some fruit in Corinth, but let me just tell you, even when there are good things happening in ministry to be grateful for, you can still be very discouraged as a minister of the gospel. Even when a minister on the outside looks like everything is good, on the inside he might be just struggling with fear and discouragement. If I'm Paul, I'm afraid of what's going to happen next, and I'm looking for a way out. But then Jesus steps in. Look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Jesus gives Paul two instructions. First, do not be afraid. Fear not. When Paul, as a student of Scripture, heard that voice say those words, no doubt he heard an echo of words 
that his God had said to his servants over and over and over throughout the ages. As Paul heard those words from that voice, he was hearing words that had been spoken to Abraham and Moses and Joshua and David and Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and on and on and on. Fear not. Second instruction was go on speaking and do not be silent. Paul, you only think that your time in Corinth has come to an end. Don't give up. Keep on preaching the gospel. Why? Why should Paul not be afraid? Why should he keep on speaking? Verse 10, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. So Jesus gives Paul two reasons why he should not be afraid and keep on speaking. First, he says, I am with you, with you. You can hear an echo of Joshua 1.9. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You can hear an echo of Matthew 28, 20. I am with you always to the end of the age. Paul's fear could be dispelled by the very presence of Jesus with him. Paul may have felt alone. He may have felt like he didn't have what it would take to endure in ministry in Corinth. But in Christ, because Jesus was with him, Paul had in him everything. That he needs. I am with you. Jesus says. The second reason Paul should not be afraid. And should keep on speaking. Is because Jesus promised. That no one would attack him to harm him. Now notice. That promise was not. No one will attack you. Period. Paul will as we've already read. Be attacked. But. He will not be attacked harmed. Paul can move forward and minister with confidence knowing that Jesus has promised him physical protection. But why? Why did Jesus decide to provide physical protection to Paul? Well, look at verse 10 one more time. He says, for I have many in this city who are my people. There were people in Corinth whom God the Father had chosen to give to Jesus, and they needed to come to him. These people were Jesus' people, and these people needed to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. But before they could do that, they had to believe in him. And before they could do that, they had to hear about him. And before they could do that, they needed a preacher to be sent to them to preach the word of Christ. And so, Paul hears from Jesus, go on speaking, do not be silent. And what effect did Jesus' words have on Paul? Verse 11, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word. So Paul did two things. He stayed and he taught the word. He stayed. He stayed. He didn't just stay for a few more weeks. He stayed longer than he had stayed anywhere 
on his missionary journey so far. In fact, he will only stay longer in one other place as recorded in the book of Acts. And that's Ephesus. And we're going to start looking at that next week. He stayed. And he taught the word. He just kept opening the scriptures. He just kept preaching the gospel. He just kept telling them about Jesus. He just kept on speaking and was not silent. He just stayed faithful. He stayed and he taught. He stayed and he taught. And he let the Father draw all who belong to Jesus to himself. Paul was able to keep staying. Paul was able to keep teaching the word because Jesus promised that he would be with him and he promised him protection. Our confidence as we walk through this life as Christians, our confidence comes from Jesus alone. Our confidence comes from Jesus alone. As we live out our Christian lives, we must not place our faith in anything other than the Lord Jesus. We must not look for hope and stability and security from anything other than the Lord Jesus. We want to see his mission advance. We want to see the gospel go forth. We want to see his church built. And because we care about those things, we care about the things that look like they're going to threaten the advance of the mission. That look like they're going to threaten the gospel from going forth. That look like they're going to threaten the church being built. It's, it's natural for us to not want those things because we want what Jesus wants. His mission, his gospel, his church. But nothing less than the power of Jesus will do any of those things. Nothing less than the power of Jesus will advance his mission. Nothing less than the power of Jesus will cause the gospel to go forth. Nothing less than the power of Jesus will build up his church. We can have confidence in Jesus alone. And so we must not depend on anything else besides the power of Jesus to do what Jesus wants us to do. We can have confidence, just like Paul, because he is with us. He's with us. If you are in Christ, the same Jesus who was with Paul is with you fully. Nothing, at no time, will you ever experience a moment in Christ when Jesus is not with you. Nothing happens. Not a moment goes by that Jesus is not with you. As you seek to be faithful in your home, as you seek to be faithful in your occupation, as you seek to be faithful in our church, Jesus is with you, and you can count on him. We can have confidence because he's with us, and we can have confidence because he is in control. Nothing will ever touch you that is not designed by Jesus to accomplish his purpose for you. And as we carry out his mission, we do so knowing that Jesus has determined it will not fail. We can have confidence preaching the gospel because God is in control. We can have confidence going out time and time and time again because God will change hearts. He will raise dead souls to life. 
we can have confidence because he is in control and he is with us. So don't settle for anything less than Jesus. Find your confidence in him alone. We can trust him to fulfill his promises to us just like he fulfilled his promise to Paul. And that's exactly what we see last in this passage, protection granted. See, protection needed, protection promised, and then verses 12 through 17, protection granted. So Luke told us how Jesus promised that Paul would not be attacked and harmed. And Luke follows that promise by giving us a story of how Jesus fulfilled that promise, starting in verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Now, like we said, the Jews did attack Paul, and they brought him to Gallio, who is the, the governor of the region. Uh, you see that word tribunal there. Uh, the tribunal was a, a physical seat made out of stone. And uh, so approaching the tribunal was kind of like approaching the bench. Uh, that was the seat on which the, the, the proconsul, the, the governor, would sit and judge and uh, adjudicate things. So uh, this judgment seat's actually been excavated in Corinth. You can look it up online and see a picture of it. And, and no doubt, this very seat would have been on the minds of the Corinthians whenever they opened up Paul's letter, 2 Corinthians, and read the words in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So the Jews attack Paul. They take him to the proconsul. The proconsul sits on his judgment seat and the Jews start making their accusation in verse 13. This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Well, what law? Well, as the story unfolds, it seems that by law, uh, most likely they meant the Jewish law as opposed to the Roman law. Because they're accusing Paul of seducing people away from the Jewish worship and the law of Moses toward worshiping God in a way that went against Jewish law, or so they understood. Well, so they're bringing him before the secular governor. Why would a secular governor care about this accusation that they've made against Paul? Well, some have suggested that it has to do with the fact that Judaism was an approved or sanctioned religion within the Roman Empire. And as we've already said, and we'll see again in a moment, the Romans didn't see a difference between Christians and Jews. They thought Christianity was just sort of like a subcategory of Judaism. So here's what might have been going on in, these Jewish, in this Jewish mind. If the Jews could prove that Christianity was different from Judaism, then all of a sudden Christianity wouldn't have that legal protection that it came from being associated with Judaism, and they could make the case that Christians were, in fact, practicing an unapproved religion. Well, that may be the case, but whatever the point of their accusation was, it really didn't matter, because this secular judge did not care about it at all. Paul was getting ready to make his defense about this accusation, and the proconsul didn't even let him speak. He interrupts him, and he says this, starting in verse 14, if it were a matter of wrongdoing, 
or vicious crime, O Jews? I would have reason to accept your complaint, but since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. So Gallio says, you're wasting my time. This isn't even a real crime. Don't come to me to solve your theological debates, Jews. And he sends them away. And then finally in verse 17, they all seize Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So it's not totally clear who beat Sosthenes or why they beat him. But Paul would actually go on to write the letter of 1 Corinthians with a Christian brother named Sosthenes. So it may be that Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, had become a Christian just like Crispus, the previous ruler of the synagogue, had become a Christian. And so it might be that the Jews were just lashing out against this man because of their hatred of Christianity. So that, that may be what's happening there. It's not totally clear. What's more clear is what's said about Gallio, that he paid no attention to any of this. So the, the picture here is of a leader who is supposed to be promoting justice, who acts totally indifferent to this injustice that's committed right in front of him. But the most important thing that happens is this, in this story is actually what did not happen in this story. Paul was not harmed. Jesus kept his promise to protect Paul from harm. And Jesus even used an unjust secular official to do it. Paul was attacked, but he was not harmed. And ultimately, he was delivered out of the hands of the Jews who were in Corinth. And here's what we need to understand from this section. Jesus will fulfill his promise, but he will do it his way. Jesus will fulfill his promise, but he will do it his way. And we can see that truth in this section in two different senses. First, he will keep his promises precisely. Now imagine how discouraged Paul would have been if he had not listened carefully to the words of Jesus. The Jews start attacking him. And he's like, what gives Jesus? You said they wouldn't attack me. When actually, what Jesus said is they wouldn't attack him to harm him. Well, we need to remember that as we trust in the promises of Scripture. This means that we need to be able to tell the difference between what he did promise us and what he did not promise us. So, for example, if you're in Christ, Jesus has promised you health and prosperity, but not on the side of eternity. Some of y'all just breathed in a huge sigh of relief. It was really funny. Um, Jesus promised that to us. He'll wipe every tear from our eyes, pierced for our transgressions, crushed by his wounds. We are healed, Isaiah says. But he has not promised that on this side of eternity. What he's promised on this side of eternity is sickness and suffering and death and groaning. And then in the new heavens, 
and a new earth, health and prosperity. So we need to be clear on what Jesus has actually promised and what he has not promised if we are to trust and cling to the promises of Jesus. Well, similarly, we also need to be able to tell the difference between what Jesus has promised to us and what Jesus has promised to someone else who is not us. So, for example, we can't take promises made to the nation of Israel and assume that those promises apply to America. If we're going to cling to the promises of Jesus, we need to understand what Jesus has promised, who he has promised it to, And once we are clear on precisely what Jesus has said, you can take that to the bank. But just like Paul, we need to understand that Jesus keeps his promises precisely. And second, Jesus will use any means he chooses to keep his promises. He will use any means that he chooses to keep his promises. Who did Jesus use to keep his promise to Paul in this story? Gallio. This secular governor. And the picture that Luke paints of Gallio is not a flattering one. He's dismissive. He's unjust. He's apathetic. Yet, Jesus used Gallio as an instrument in his hand to keep the promise that he made to Paul. When Jesus keeps his promises, he will use whatever and whoever he wants to use to keep his promise. Jesus may use a crooked governing official to keep his promise. Jesus may allow people to believe a false ideology as he works to advance his mission. Jesus may even send a pandemic as he builds his church. We can trust Jesus to keep his promises, no matter what means he chooses in order to do so. We may think he should use different means. We may not like the means that he uses. But one thing you can be absolutely certain of, Jesus will keep his promises. And he will do it in his way. Our Lord Jesus is the protector of the mission. Those whom the Father has given him will come to him. He will be with us to the end of the age. And he will fulfill his purpose for us. So let's not talk like Christianity is fragile. We don't have a weak faith because we do not have a weak Lord. Our faith, our church, and our very lives are safe in the strong hands of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our protector, and he never fails. Let's pray together. Father, you are the God who created all things, 
who sustains all things, who is sovereign over all things, who rules over the world, who rules over your people with love and mercy and justice and righteousness. Lord, you have given all authority in heaven and on earth to your son, Jesus. You have given him as head over all things to the church. And so, Lord, we as his church want to trust in him. We want to have full confidence in who Jesus is, what he is doing, and what he has called us to do. Lord, not because circumstances are favorable, not because of anything in us, but because Jesus is the protector of the church. Jesus is our confidence. Jesus is the one who will keep us to the end and fulfill all of his purposes. So, Father, I pray that our hearts would turn away from anything else that we are trying to place our confidence in, and that our hearts would place our confidence fully in Jesus for security, confidence, hope, life, forgiveness, everything. May we turn to no one and nothing less than Jesus for everything we need. It's in his name we pray. Amen.